0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter, and we're going to start a new series today in uh, the first epistle written by the apostle Peter. Of course, epistle is just an old word for letter. And Peter is the nickname given by Jesus uh, to one of his disciples named Simon. Simon who with his brother Andrew uh, was a professional fisherman and one of the first disciples that Jesus called to himself. Peter is the first to make the good confession. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He is the one who says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's when Jesus says, Yes, and you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock of that good confession, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. When many followers of Jesus in John chapter 6 are walking away from him because of his hard teachings, as hundreds if not thousands of people are are turning away from jesus and going away from him he asks his disciples are you going to leave me too and it's peter who speaks up and says lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have come to believe and to know that you are the holy one of god peter is one of three disciples that the Lord takes with him up on the mount to see his glory in the transfiguration. Peter is the apostle who gets out of the boat and walks on water to Jesus, beginning to sink and then having Jesus rescue him. Peter is the impulsive apostle who grabs a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant when the mob comes to arrest Jesus. Just a few hours earlier, Peter is the one in the upper room who, when Jesus takes off his tunic and wraps it around his waist and is washing the feet of the the disciples, he says, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And so Peter says, okay, wash my feet and my hands and my head as well. Peter is the apostle who told Jesus on that very night, I will lay down my life for you. And then found himself almost immediately in fulfillment of Jesus's earlier prophecy, denying the Lord, not once, but three times saying, I do not know him. And despite his bitter grief over that failure, Peter is the one who runs to the tomb and who enters the tomb and is the first to find it empty after the resurrection. Peter is the apostle we saw last week who is restored on the beach over a breakfast of fish as Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time as Peter affirms his love for the Lord, Jesus responds, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. And that's what becomes the mission of Peter's life. Feeding Christ's sheep. It's Peter who stands up on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the great crowd of people from everywhere under heaven are assembled and he is the one who proclaims the gospel and has 3,000 people respond in repentance and faith and baptism. And then he's gonna give the rest of his life to the proclamation of the gospel until he is martyred. It was over that breakfast on that beach that Jesus told Peter that he would die by crucifixion. And the church fathers tell us that that's exactly what happened. This same Peter writes this letter from Rome during what is going to be the last decade of his life. And he writes this letter to Christian churches in the region of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, but in the northern part, uh, north of the Taurus Mountains, These communities and their churches were diverse, ethnically and culturally and even linguistically, but they were all part of one empire, the Roman Empire. They were conquered people. The Christians in the region were experiencing difficulty, societal marginalization, relational alienation, and socioeconomic deprivation because of their faith. Because their priorities and their lifestyles and their allegiances were so different from those of their unbelieving neighbors. Commentator Karen Jobes says this, the differences were sufficiently visible to cause unbelievers to take notice and for some to heap abuse. I want just ask us, are our differences from the world around us as followers of Christ sufficiently visible to cause unbelievers around us to take notice? This epistle is a pastoral letter. The believers to whom Peter writes are in a season of suffering and struggle and the apostle writes to remind them of the real hope of the gospel. And he points them to this real hope first by emphasizing their identity. He reminds them of who they are in Christ. And that's what the focus of the first half of the book is on, their identity, who they are in Christ. And the second half of the book focuses on the mission, how they are to live for Christ, who they are in Christ, leading to how they are to live for Christ. But it's not a, a clean division because who we are always drives what we do. And what we do always reflects who we are. Identity always leads to mission. Identity leads to mission. Real hope comes from who we are in Christ, and it drives what we do for Christ. We are a people of hope. A people of real hope, yes, for eternity, but also for right now. And what we see in these opening 12 verses of Peter's letter is him establishing for his readers an identity of hope. An identity of hope. So let's look together at God's word. First, Peter 1, 1 through 12. And I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word if you are able. "'Though you do not now see him, "'you believe in him and rejoice with a joy "'that is inexpressible and filled with glory, "'obtaining the outcome of your faith, "'the salvation of your souls. "'Concerning this salvation, "'the prophets who prophesied about the grace "'that was to be yours, "'searched and inquired carefully, inquiring What person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's thank the Lord and ask for his help. Oh Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have inspired and preserved this word so that we might hear it, so that we might understand it, so that we might believe it and love it and apply it to our lives. Oh Lord, would you take this identity of hope so clearly articulated by the apostle and help us to apply it to our lives, Lord, that we might live out citizenship in your kingdom before a watching world. And so that we ourselves might glory in the hope and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this story is uh, gonna be a little hard for me to tell uh, as a Braves fan, especially uh, considering how badly the Cubs beat us yesterday. But in uh, game seven, of the 2016 World Series, the Cubs blew a six to three lead over the Cleveland Indians. And so it was tied going into the ninth, but in the ninth inning, the rains began to fall. And the grounds crew came out and they put the tarp over and the teams retreated to their dugouts and into their clubhouses to wait out the rain. And having blown this lead, where they thought that they were gonna win the World Series for the first time in over a century, The players on the Cubs team, the managers, and, of course, the fans, all began to have that sinking, here-we-go-again feeling. But one of the Cubs players, former Atlanta Brave, Jason Hayward, gathered the team together in the weight room behind the dugout, and he had a very simple message for them. He said, remember who you are. He reminded them that they had the best record in all of baseball for that year. He reminded them that they had already won two difficult series with very good teams. He reminded them that they had already come back from a 3-1 to deficit in this very World Series to force this Game 7. He said, remember who you are, stick together, and we will win this game. Moved by this declaration of truth and what had gone before, the Cubs rallied and driven by the facts of their identity. They won their first World Series in 108 years. Identity drives mission. Who we are produces what we do. And remembering who we are helps us live as we should. And identity The concept of identity runs through Peter's opening to this letter, and he begins with his own identity. Who is he? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter identifies himself as belonging to Jesus, as being commissioned by Jesus, sent by Jesus. He even uses the nickname that Jesus gave him to identify himself, and the title apostle It means sent one, a messenger, an ambassador, someone who is sent by another to speak with that person's full authority. By using this title, apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter is establishing who he is by identifying whose he is. He's establishing who he is by identifying whose he is, and that's the pattern he will use in reminding his readers of their identity also. Who you are is because of whose you are. Belonging to and being sent by Jesus are central to Peter's understanding of himself. Apostle also communicates his authority. Peter is writing uh, this letter as a shepherd. He's writing it as a pastor, But his office of apostle makes this letter fundamentally different from a note or an email that you might receive from your pastor. When Peter sat down to write this letter or to dictate it to Sylvanus, the possibility existed that what he wrote or dictated would be inspired, that he would be carried along by the Holy Spirit, that his words would be kept as the very word of God for his people. And that possibility came to fruition, and we have it right in front of us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that is his identity. Peter also immediately mentions God's identity. And who is God, according to Peter? Well, God is triune. Peter names the three persons of our one God. He names the Father, he names God the Spirit, and he names God the Son, Jesus Christ. Our Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, does a great job summarizing the Bible's teaching very simply on the Trinity in just two questions. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only the living and true God. And this is drawn from Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema that Hebrew people would recite to the Lord and to one another. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And this is drawn primarily from Matthew chapter 28, the entire teaching of the New Testament on the Trinity, but especially Jesus' proclamation that when we baptize, when we make disciples, we are to do it in the name of the Father, name, not names, name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Now, the Trinity is difficult to grasp. Like so many other things about our God, like his eternality. How can a being have no beginning and no end? Or his omnipresence. How can a being be everywhere and every when all at once? Or his providence. How can God be at work, though he is completely and only good, how can he be at work through even evil, working his purposes in the world? So also we ask, how can a being be one and three? How can a being be three in one? And one of the mistakes that people make is to treat the attributes of God in general and his nature as triune, like a problem to be solved, like an equation that we can figure out. And so people try to come up with well-meaning illustrations uh, for what the Trinity is like to help us understand God is like an egg. God is like a shamrock. God is like H2O. Problem is that there is no fitting analogy for our triune God in all of creation. As try as hard as we might, these end up teaching us error. In fact, heresies that had to be condemned by the early church. Heresies like modalism, that God is just one person who shows up in different modes. Or partialism, that God is, uh, that each person is only one part of God rather than fully God. And what happens is we make an infinitely beautiful truth About our infinitely wonderful God into a sad and erroneous and confusing equation. The Trinity is not a problem to be solved. The Trinity is the God who is, the God who has revealed himself to us, the God that we can know, and the God who knows us. When Peter begins to remind his readers of their identity, it's always in relationship to and in light of the triune God. The Father foreknowing his people and setting his affections upon them. The Spirit giving them a new nature and empowering them through sanctification to live out obedience to Jesus Christ, whose blood has been shed and sprinkled to wash them clean from all their sins. Our God is their triune redeemer, our triune redeemer. And what about Peter's original audience? What's their identity? Well, they are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. On the one hand, what is going to be clear to us throughout this book is that this idea of exiles is a metaphor that Peter uses to describe the relationship of Christians to the world around us. Now, on the other hand, historically, it is possible That his audience were Christians from Rome who had been expelled from that city. And that they were exiled, deported to Roman colonies in the middle of the first century. But in any case, whether that is the case for them, temporally speaking or not, as we mentioned before, they were living as foreigners under societal and relational and political and socioeconomic suffering and pressure to conform what about us? We're obviously not the original audience to whom Peter was writing. We we live in a different time, in a different place, and certainly under drastically different circumstances. Most of us are not displaced people, whether by choice or by force from our homelands. But I do want to take a moment to say to our members and to our attenders who are displaced people, whether by a choice or by force. Those of you who are immigrants and refugees and students, I just want to say how grateful we are for you for your being a part of us, for your presence with us. We are blessed by you, and we are blessed by your gifts, and we are thankful that you have chosen to sojourn with us, and we have a lot to learn from you about what it means to live as in a foreign land. And We're so glad that you're here, and we love you. And while we are not Peter's original audience... The Holy Spirit inspired and preserved this letter for the people of God in all ages, including us. And this epistle has profound relevance for all of us because of what we share in common with this original audience, an identity of hope. And what is that identity? Who are we? Well, Peter gives us two parts to our identity in these first 12 verses. Who are we? First, We are elect. We are elect. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. As Americans, of course, we are familiar with the the concept of election. One of our freedoms and privileges that we have is electing those who serve as our leaders. We choose our leaders to represent us. But what does it mean to be elect of God? It means to be chosen by God. And Peter knew what it meant to be chosen. Peter wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't even looking for some kind of spiritual experience. He was just doing his job on a boat fishing. And Jesus comes along and he calls Peter. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. And later, Jesus would reiterate that the disciples, including Peter, were elect of God. John chapter 15, verse 16 Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go out and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And Peter's story is our story too. We did not choose God. God chose us. Election by God of his people is a theme throughout all of Scripture. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that Abraham was chosen, that Moses was chosen, that David was chosen for salvation and for the role that each played in the story of God's people. In the New Testament, Jesus refers specifically to the elect in Matthew and Mark and Luke. In John, He doesn't use the word elect, but he refers to that same group of people as his sheep who hear his voice and follow him, the ones for whom he lays down his life, the ones that cannot be taken from his hand. He also says in the Gospel of John, those whom the Father has given him. In his letters, the Apostle Paul regularly deals with the concept of election, often reminding believers that they are God's beloved chosen ones. He says it in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in Colossians, both letters to the Thessalonians and perhaps most beautifully in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6 and I'll read that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ If today you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have salvation in his name, then you are chosen by God. In love, before you were ever created, before anything was created, God elected you to be his own through Jesus. That's what Peter means when he calls these Christians elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That foreknowledge is is not describing God uh, somehow foreseeing before he created that you would be a winner so he could go ahead and preemptively make you a part of his team. No, in fact, Paul is going to explain that quite the opposite is the case. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 at 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to earthly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame what is strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As the hymn writer Josiah Condor wrote in 1836, My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me, made me new. Of old you have ordained me that I should live in you. Unless your grace had called me and taught my darkened mind, The world would have enthralled me. To your glories I'd be blind. My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace I trust. I know, I'm sorry, for your rich grace I thirst. I know that if I love you, you must have loved me first. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, If you have received him and are resting in him alone for your salvation, just like these first century Christians, you are elect of God, loved unconditionally from before the foundation of the world. You are chosen by God. And this is a profoundly humbling truth, and it is foundational to our identity that we can live as people of hope because we, through nothing about ourselves, but only the love and pleasure of God, are chosen by Him and loved by Him. This formula, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. When we come to, I just want to take a minute to explain this. When we come to baptism, I think sometimes there's confusion about what happens in baptism. Well, I want to be clear that what happens in baptism is an identity is given to a person whether it is a spiritual babe who is coming through faith in Christ, professing their faith and being baptized, or whether it is a literal baby, a covenant child of our congregation, what God is doing In baptism is giving this child an identity, an identity according to his word. And so what is pictured in baptism is the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. This being chosen by God before the foundation of the world, having the work of Christ applied by the Spirit and having the sprinkling of Christ's blood, our great high priest. And that's why we do it by sprinkling. It images Christ's high priestly work. And it's why often Uh, we don't only apply it to professing believers, but also to helpless children. Because before we could have ever done anything, before we could have ever chosen God, He chose us. Our identity is a people of hope because We are chosen and loved by God. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we wear the jersey. We wear the identity of baptism, having been claimed by God for his own. And this is absolutely crucial to our hope, because like these first century Christians, not only are we elect, we are also exiles. We are elect exiles, Being elect of God means living as exiles. It means living as foreigners, as sojourners, as immigrants, as refugees, as resident aliens in this world. As Jesus puts it in his prayer to the Father in John 17, we are most certainly in this world, but we are equally certainly not of this world. Now, when we were born into this world, we were of this world. We were born children of our father Adam, having inherited his sin and being sinners by nature and by choice. We were bound to darkness and death. We were not resident aliens. We were resident citizens of this world by birth and the kingdom of this world. And we were quite at home in our native country. We were actively in rebellion against God and justly under his wrath and curse. But then something happened. Because God set his affections on us before the foundation of the world, because God called you by name from before the foundation of the world, because God loved you while you were still a sinner, he gave you a new birth. You were born a citizen of this world. And God, in love for you, gave you a new birth. In John chapter three, a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the cover of night, and he tells uh, Jesus, hey, listen, we know that you are a teacher come from God because you're doing these amazing miracles. And Jesus doesn't even respond to what Nicodemus says. He says, instead, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, you are the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. And he makes it clear that one birth, our physical birth, is not enough for salvation. So what the Pharisees believed is that because they were part of the chosen people of God, because they had the covenants and the promises and the patriarchs that they were in, A physical birth isn't enough for salvation. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? And Jesus tells him, no one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now that reference to Moses is from Numbers 21, when God uh, sends judgment on his people for their grumbling and complaining about God's good provision for them in the wilderness. He sends poisonous snakes into their camp, and they begin to bite the Israelites, and some of them get ill, and some of them even die. And Moses begins to intercede for his people, and God says, well, I'll make a way of salvation. I'll make a way for them to live. I want you to make a, uh, a bronze serpent And I want you to put it up on a pole and anyone who comes and looks to that serpent in faith will be saved and they'll be healed. You were born physically alive but spiritually dead and God so loved you. He refused to let you perish with the kingdom of darkness and death. So he sent his son to be lifted up on a cross to receive God's justice for your sin in your place. So that you could look to him in faith and live. But in your spiritual deadness, you could not lift your eyes to Christ. You could not repent and believe the gospel. So in love and mercy, God the Holy Spirit comes and he takes out our heart of stone, our dead heart, and he gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that is living and responsive to God and is able to look to Christ in faith. And when we do, the Spirit unites us to Jesus in his righteous life and in his atoning death and in his victorious resurrection. This is how Peter says it in verse 3. Blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Your salvation was purposed by God the Father and accomplished by God the Son, and applied by God the Holy Spirit. You have been raised from death to life. You have been transferred from citizenship in the kingdom of darkness and death into the kingdom of God and his marvelous light. You have been born again to a living hope, and you've been given an identity of hope. And this identity comes with an eternal inheritance, imperishable undefiled, and unfading. Life and joy that will never perish and will never spoil and will never never fade, but is being kept secure for you, God's chosen and loved child. See, this, this identity comes not only with an eternal inheritance, but also an eternal insurance. You are being guarded by the power of God through faith. You have hope for eternity and you have hope for right now because God chose you and rescued you and he will keep you because you have been born again. We have been given an identity of hope through the election of God. But this changes our relationship to the world. Our identity of hope changes our relationship to the world. To be elect is to be chosen by God, but to be an exile is to be opposed by the world. To be elect is to be chosen by God, but to be an, ex- an exile is to be opposed by the world. Now, I want us to be very clear that, that being opposed by the world does not give us permission to see and to treat our neighbors and the nations, the unbelieving people around us, as our enemies to be defeated. No. They are the very people to whom Christ has called us. They are a people to be loved and pointed to the good news of the gospel. And part of that means enduring opposition. And opposition comes in many forms, endless forms of opposition from the world to us. I just want to mention briefly three. Uh, First, the world attempts to claim you. One way that the world opposes us is that it, it attempts to claim us, and that doesn't feel like opposition. In fact, it feels good when the world wants to accept us, when the world wants to give us its approval, where the world wants us to pull into its values, its desires, and its allegiances, the world tries to claim us. But because we are chosen by God, because we are loved by God, because we are redeemed by God, because we are no longer primarily citizens of this country and this world, but citizens of the very kingdom of God, our identity cannot be in the things of the world. Now the things of the world are not always bad. There are so many blessings in the world. Who made the world? God, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So there's so much good, right? And yet, none of the things of the world can be our central identity anymore. We cannot be defined by our work, by our vocation. We cannot be defined by our income. We cannot be defined by our heritage. We cannot be defined primarily by our ethnicity. We cannot be defined by our nationality. We cannot be defined by our politics. We cannot be defined by the things of the world. We can't be defined by our marital status. We can't be defined by all the things in the world that want to claim us and have us use them as our primary identity. It is good to enjoy the good blessings of God. We said that repeatedly in our series of Ecclesiastes, right? It is good to enjoy God's good blessings to us, to his glory, but we must never make God's good temporal blessings our identity because we will only uh, enjoy this temporary life for a little while and we will live in the kingdom of God forever. The world attempts to claim us. If the world can't claim us, as was true of these first century believers, then the world attempts to control you. It tries to define the parameters by which you can live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It tries to place limits on how much Jesus you can really bring into public life. The world tries to control us. And this is, I would say that that the world claiming us is probably the biggest internal danger to us because we feel drawn to the world and the things of the world. So that's the most immediately deadly for us. But the second one, the place that we're beginning to feel more tension and more opposition as citizens of the United States is in this attempt to control just how much of the Lord and his kingdom we can bring into public life. And we need to be aware of that. Well, if the world can't claim you and if the world can't control you, then the world will simply condemn you and will say, tell you who you are rather than allowing the Lord to define who you are. And this is what the believers Peter was writing to were facing. And what does he tell them? Does he tell them, all right, well, you need to gather up a coalition and you need to get for yourselves some cultural and political and economic power so that you can overcome the heathens in the Roman Empire and make it so that you're no longer having to be defined by or condemned by these people? That's not what Peter says. He doesn't tell them to seek their rights or to pursue power. No, instead, he points them back to their identity of hope in Christ which will bring them joy in the midst of their trials and grief. He gives them a new way to view the very suffering that they are enduring as exiles in this world. He doesn't say that you need to react to it by fighting against it. He says you need to react to it by pressing once again into the hope of the gospel, remembering who you are as loved by God and seeing your trials, even your suffering as something that tests the genuineness of your faith like gold that is refined by fire so that when Jesus comes, there will be praise and glory and joy for you. See, ultimately, we have to see the opposition that we endure from the world not as a bad thing, but as evidence of our belonging to the kingdom of God and as God's plan for our sanctification and for our holiness. He is using the opposition of the world against us for our good and for his glory. And in the end, y'all, all all that matters is that we get Jesus, the all-surpassing treasure. And he reminds them that as elect exiles, they are in good Company. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What he is telling these elect exiles is that they are part of a long line of elect exiles, people that God chose and set apart to live as citizens of the kingdom of God rather than than citizens of the kingdom of this world. Hebrews eleven tells us about those who were burned at the stake, those who were sawn into, those who had to hide in caves and flee from their enemies, of whom the world was not worthy. And he says, You, though you have not seen him, you've loved him. Though do you do not yet see him, you have believed in him. And what is true of you as those who have not yet seen Jesus? Remember Jesus' words to Judas that we looked at last week? Oh, you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That just like you, having to live in hope rather than sight, all of the Old Testament saints had to live exactly as you do, as an elect exile awaiting the promises of God to come to fruition. And this, just as God fulfilled all his promises the first time in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will do so again when the Jesus returns. And this is such good news that even the angels can't quite grasp it. They want to understand. They want to know the glory of the gospel. And yet, while angels long to look into it, it's your very identity, an identity of hope that comes from Christ. I'll just close by reading verses 1 through 4 again. Peter undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being, reg- who are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Brothers and sisters, we have been given an identity of hope and we are called to live that out in this world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you uh, for this identity that you have given us by predestining us to salvation and calling us and justifying us and sanctifying us. Thank you, Lord, that you will one day glorify us when we see the risen Christ returning. And oh, Lord, I pray that we would live in this hope daily and that we would live as exiles in this world. Lord, that we would choose discomfort rather than comfort with the things of this world. That we would choose sacrificial love for our neighbors and the nations. Lord, that we would glory in what you are doing, even through the opposition that we endure from the world and the flesh and the devil. O Lord, work in your people that we might glorify your name in the way that we live and in the gospel that we proclaim. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's stand once more and respond to God's word in song.